If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. Hope life is good. All is moseying along as it should be. I am, well, that's funny. I spent most of last week in London. and Your second home, Mac. No, yeah, not really. I haven't been there for so. a long time. I mean, I've always thought that London is our New York for Irish people. Mm. That whatever happens in the UK, London, we're, imagine we're from Connecticut, right? Yeah. Or we're from New Jersey, or we're from Philadelphia or Pennsylvania. London is like our New York. It's kind of it's attractive, it's big, it's full of opportunity. And even in all the chaos, you know, I went there. Your mother went there. Yes, yeah. Our kids go there. Your brother lives there. I mean... In fact, my eldest has just moved there. There. Well, there you go, yeah. right? I've always seen it as my kind of second home. Well, you've seen it because you you, you spent much more time there than I did. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, you, did, you did about 20 years there. Uh, 17 or 18. Yeah, it's a yeah. long, long time. Yeah. So I always regard, you know, people, people non-Irish people ask me, you know, what do you think of London? And I said, but basically, to it, it's basically our New York. And for all the good and all the bad. Mm. And it's yeah, yeah. and it's still no and no matter what happens in this extraordinary to coin your own term, things like shit show in London, in the UK, it's still gonna be attractive. Yeah. And, and and generations of young Irish people, but not just Irish people, generations of young Europeans, generations of well, maybe not Europeans now because of Brexit, but you know, people go there because again, cities are transformative places. And if you look at the history of humanity, the histories of the big, attractive city is the prospect of personal transformation. You know, that's why you go to the city, because you say, I want to be a different type of person. I want different types of opportunities, meet different people, have different experiences, yada, 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 that I don't have here. So I think the very energy of the city will yeah. never diminish or yeah. shouldn't diminish. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the problem with the UK now, I mean, John, I was there this week giving a speech, a talk, not a speech, a talk for Unilever. So Unilever is a huge okay. British Dutch company, yeah. right? Originally British Dutch company, massive, massive. What are you talking about? 
The world, John. The world. <laughs> I was talking about the global economy. The world What's according going to Garth. Exactly. I was giving them, you know, art and literature and philosophy and science and all this. But the thing, the science thing is interesting because yeah. it was in the science gallery, the British <gasps> Science yeah. Museum Love in it. South Kensington. Yeah. On, I think it's Prince Albert Road. Yeah. Not the Prince Albert you're thinking about, the other one. <laughs> It is yeah. a really, really intro. Got you there. No, Jesus. <laughs> Early doors in the podcast as well. Early doors to come out with that. But it is what struck me. I'm giving this speech at, at dinner and there's a lot of people from all over the world there mm. because, you know, Unilever is a massive, massive company. But in the Science Museum, the Science Museum is a monument to British creativity, to British innovation. Yeah. So you have, you know, you have your Darwins and your Newtons and your Faradays and all these extraordinary innovators, inventors that came out of Britain, right? Yeah. And when you're sitting there absorbing it, and also what's interesting in the Science Museum is a lot of it's devoted to the commercialization of invention. Yeah. Right? And that's where the Brits were actually extremely good, is taking the inventors, but commercializing them into products, into industries, yeah. you know. So I, it's funny. So you're, you're sitting there, you think that there was a time when the UK was a source of enormous innovation. And innovation Well, is, it, was the, it was the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, you know. Exactly. And, and, and the, what they call the workshop of the world. Yeah. And what we know is that what makes economies really impressive is the diversity of what I would call ways of making a living, mm. right? So you've got two types of economies. You've got very diverse economies where there's loads of things going on. Yeah. Like an ecosystem, Yeah, right? Yeah. And then you've got like monocultures like Saudi Arabia where they produce oil. They might get rich producing oil, but nothing else is going on. Yeah, that's so their gig, yeah. So they're really fragile. Yeah. Whereas the diversity is something, and the Brits had achieved diversity. This is the interesting thing. Now, a lot of Irish people might say, through an imperialist project, they kick the shit out of the rest of the world, but it doesn't matter. They they achieve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They kind of dignified innovators, and innovation is what counts. The, the economy cannot grow without innovation. Innovation is this bizarre idea where two unlikely things come together and catch on. Yeah, right. And the Brits encouraged that. They dignified it. The city of London. This is what I was thinking while I was in the science museum. The city of London used to finance all those engineers. You know, the Brunels of this yes. world. They financed yeah, yeah, them. Yeah. They, they, those guys would have gone and said, I have a plan to build a bridge, but I'm going to build this bridge commercially. Will you back me? Yeah. And the city of London funneled, now it must be said, the money definitely came from the empire. Yeah, so yeah. It funneled, well, that, 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 was the, 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 that was the model, yeah. right? You know, despicable as it is now, and it was despicable, that's how they did it. But they funneled the money of empire into lots of, of crazy shit because the funniest thing is if you travel around England, the amount of follies and architectural oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. weirdness. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like some eccentric <laughs> geezer, Clive of India. We'll rob all that money from the Indians and we build a folly, right? Yeah, yeah. But apart from the follies, they they financed industry, right? So you have you know this podcast, by the way, is almost an elegy to a lost Britain. Because when I was walking around the Science Museum, I thought they had everything. And the contrast between that Britain that is on evidence there mm. in the Science Museum mm. and the shambles that Britain is now just reinforces how far that country has fallen. Yeah. I mean, and sometimes that historical sweep can be dramatic, but it actually gives you a framework to say, wow, I mean, we don't have a Science Museum 
yeah. in this country, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. of any consequence. Now, science nerds and boffins will say, well, in actual fact, we had Boyle and we had, you know, yes, we did have one or two, but I'm talking the Darwins of this world, the Newtons of the world. They have these extraordinary thinkers. And you walk around there and, yeah, you see, like, Kensington is still gorgeous and, you know, Knightsbridge is still gorgeous. Yeah. But those big buildings, they're just the legacy of empire. They were just built, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, the Natural History Museum is one of my favourite buildings. Well, you like it, actually. I, I love it. But, I, like, when you talk about the Science Museum, when we were living there, I used to bring the kids there maybe once a month. And they had that whole interact. I don't know if they still have it. I'm sure they do. I'm sure it's even bigger and better now, but the whole interactive side of that for kids. And you see on a, on any given day, schools and school trips all piling into the Natural History Museum and the Science Museum, the V&A and all that. And it's just it is fantastic. Amazing. And you know, kids, and it's really inspirational. Children can do sleepovers there. Can they? Yeah. So the wow, wow, that's so, brilliant. So, so look, I agree with you. And, yeah, and look, so what you have are these altars, cathedrals, mm. but to a different Britain. Yeah. To a Britain that doesn't exist anymore, right? And then what you see is what's the present situation, right? The present situation, and here we're going to talk to Robert Shrimsley of the Financial Times, one of right. maybe the best political correspondent in the UK, to ask him basically what the fuck's going on, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That does need to be <laughs> yeah, asked. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, there, there, there is the what the fuck's going on question. <laughs> but let us indulge our other passions, which are the economy. You know, the beauty of economics sometimes is a simplicity that one figure can tell you a huge amount of information yeah. and it crystallizes many things. And for a lot of countries, that figure is the current account deficit or surplus, right? So it's just one figure. And what it tells you about is savings and investment. It tells you about whether the country can pay its way. It tells you about how much borrowing is likely to be done. It tells mm. you about the currency. So if you look at that figure, it's incredibly important. In the United Kingdom, and I'm going to say this is important in the context of the following, they have an 8% of GDP current account deficit, right. which means that they are living way above their means. They are borrowing just to stand still. Now, there's a difference between good deficits and bad deficits in economics, right? Okay, explain so that one. If you are a country that is growing incredibly quickly, right? Six, seven, eight percent, right? Mm. Having a current account deficit is completely normal because what it means is you're growing quickly, you're absorbing in lots and lots of investment goods, you don't have your own savings to cover that because you're a new economy or sure. emerging, right? So you borrow other people's savings to pay for really good investment goods which guarantee you productivity in the future, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So therefore, if I see an emerging country with a 6 or 7% deficit, but growing at 6 or 7%. Yeah. It's a good business model. It's a good, basically, it's it's you're running really, really quickly, right? Yeah. Okay, and you're absorbing in capital, you're spending it properly, you're building for the future. Yeah. The United Kingdom is not growing. Not only is it not growing mildly or modestly, in the last quarter, it stopped growing. It's in, not a recession, but it didn't grow in the second and third quarter this year. And I also saw that Moody's downgraded them to a negative in the last which couple is, of days. Which is, which is huge, which yeah. is huge, yeah, which yeah. is huge. But if you come back to the analysis, right, if your economy is growing at only 0 or 1% and you are running a current account deficit of 8%, 
it means you're not even getting what the Americans say, a bang for your buck, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Your bang for your buck should be, you're borrowing other people's money, you're putting it into the economy, you're generating growth, and away you go. They're borrowing other people's money, they're spending the economy, it's generating no growth. Without that current account deficit, the UK would have an economy that's shrinking. So this is the dilemma. But if they only had a politician who could concentrate on growth, growth, growth. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, where, where, where did those... John, you could have been that scriptwriter. You could have been sitting there saying, Liz, Liz, quasi over here, word in your collective shell, okay? Both of them, and this is a tragedy, both of them graduated from Oxford studying PPE. Politics, philosophy, and economics. Oh, so right. I suspect the value and of that. Not P. P. <laughs> exactly. Get up, get up there and do a hundred yards sprint for us. <laughs> up there over those hurdles. Right? Now, so Britain is running an incredibly what we call a bad deficit, right? Yeah. Now, the interesting thing, it's a bit like bad behavior, right? I always talk financial markets. Let's think about the markets, right? You don't want to come into their orbit, right? Yeah. So bad behavior, if you can get away with it, it's fine, mm -hmm. right? So don't ever attract attention to yourself, okay? <laughs> keep the head if, down. Keep the head down. If you're doing shit you shouldn't be doing, yeah. keep the head down, right? So the Brits were keeping the head down for a couple of years, right? It's all fine. They were talking a good game, right? Then, of course, Liz, Trust, decides to stick her head up yeah, and yeah, say, yeah. oh, look at us. So the minute you become the focus of attention of the markets which is what they did, and the unwelcome attention. Yeah. We call it the kinds of strangers last week, right? It means that every single thing you do now will be costed to the last penny. So Britain will not be given any latitude for making mistakes. This is where they are. Yes. Okay? Because the markets are now saying, hold on a second, everything you do, we want to have first dibs on that. Now, you can argue that democratically, this is actually a big problem for a democracy if you're run by bond traders. This is the idea of the bond vigilantes, mm. that Bill Clinton's mate, James Carville, the raging Cajun. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. When I, if I come back, I want to come back as the bond market because everyone's afraid of them, okay? But what is happening in the UK is balance sheets in the UK are over-leveraged. Yeah. What happens when they have the housing crash that is coming because their rates of interest have gone from 1% to 5%, Right. What will happen is the middle class balance sheet will experience what the Japanese experience, and we did too, call a balance sheet recession, which mm. takes a long time to get out of. But I mean, the inequality is the thing. This is the culmination of 40 years of policy. Mm. Actually, why don't we go to the UK now? Let's talk to Robert Shrimsley about the main political runners and writers, what he thinks is going to happen over the next couple of days. Now, of course, this is going to change in a minute. Yes. But let's get a feel from inside the political firmament in the UK. And then let's come back and talk about what I believe is their major problem, which is this extraordinary inequality. And the inequality is not an accident. It is a function of policy. But let's first go to Robert. Robert, tell me, you write one or two very serious columns every week, and then you write a kind of a frivolous column of you know, observations about living in London and life and kids growing up and yada, yada, yada. I know you've got builders coming in, which is going to be clearly traumatic for you this week. Which column do you write about British politics this week? <laughs> well, I, I was just thinking, actually, David, that when I come over to Kilconomics, I may seek asylum. Um, <laughs> <laughs> asylum, given, um, asylum given, asylum <laughs> given. It is some 
I mean, to be fair, I think that the state of British politics passed the humour mark some time ago, at least if you live here. Might be quite funny if you don't. Um, but past the humour mark, and it, we're now back into just tragedy comedy. You know, it's actually, truthfully for a minute, I mean, ever since the Brexit vote, you know, I spent a lot of my life reporting and covering and writing about British politics. And ever since the complete chaos in Parliament around trying to deliver Brexit, I found it's actually quite upsetting at the end of it, actually thinking, this is my country and look what we're doing to it. And it's not even the point about whether Brexit's a bad idea or a good idea. Obviously, I think it's a bad idea, but it's happened. It's just the way we can't seem to function anymore. And you look at your country through the eyes of your supposed friends in the rest of the world and just think, this is hopeless. Hopeless. Now, I mean, okay, let's look at the issues, the issues, right? We've had a a near-death experience in financial markets that the UK has just come out of, right? We still have a massive balance of payments problem, which is probably your starting point. It looks as if the only option of both of them is austerity for the nation for the next 18 months or some form of austerity because they have to at least say... Well, to retrenchment the, anyway. They have to say to the bond market, look, we've got some sense of there is yeah. a cap on how much money we can borrow, yada, yada. What does the UK's politics look like thereafter? As far as policies go, well, I think in terms of the drift and direction of the government, whoever is leader, I don't think anybody thinks there's any way past the course that Jeremy Hunt put them on when he became Chancellor only seven days ago. God, is it only seven days ago at the time I'm recording this? We call um, it in Ireland a wet week. He's in yeah, the job so a wet week. Jeremy Hunt set them back on a particular path. And I don't think any of the contenders sees any way round that in broad terms. Indeed, there's a question as to when anyone would even want to move Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor because he seems to have done a job in calming things. Although I think were Rishi Sunak Prime Minister, the markets would feel a bit more relieved either way and possibly not have to go as far. If the markets are con- convinced, you may not have to be quite as brutal in the retrenchment as they yeah, probably have to true. be while they're not convinced. But it's interesting that guilt went up as soon as Boris Johnson began to be a serious contender. Britain's, um, not guilt, guilt yields went up yeah. um, as soon as Britain looked like it might be bringing him back. I, th- I think they were definitely right. There will have to be retrenchment. Under David Cameron, austerity basically seemed to mean 80% spending cuts, 20% tax rises. I think there is a recognition in the Conservative Party that that's not going to fly at the moment, particularly given the state of public services, that austerity was one of the two or three big preconditions that actually led to Brexit. So my guess is you're going to end up looking at something nearer 50-50 or even 60-40 tax rises. They're looking at ways to raise money sneakily. Okay. You know, for example, one idea that's being mooted is that the, the, the income tax threshold and allowances were frozen by Rishi Sunak. Jeremy Hunt looking at freezing them for another year so that you know, it's a stealth income tax that people don't officially right. notice, they're just suddenly poorer. So I think you'll see more tax rises as opposed to spending cuts. The problem with all of these things is in an ungovernable party, that any of these things is difficult to do. There is no caucus for tax rises. There is a caucus for spending cuts, but there's always going to be 40 or 50 Conservative MPs, which is enough to wipe out the majority, against any particular spending cut. So that takes you back to the next problem, which is that whoever wins the leadership You've still got to look governable. And if you want to reassure the markets, the markets have to say, see political stability and believe that when you say you're going to raise an extra... Yeah, whatever, you can do it. You're going to do it. So getting a new leader in place is only step one. And, you know, the last time we chatted on the phone, you were driving back from Liverpool, right? So you're driving around the UK. Let's get out of London. Let's get out of zone one or zone two. And let's think, 
What does the UK need? I mean, is Brexit over now? Does Brexit get reconstituted? Is that yesterday's discussion? Does it come back? What about the Scottish nationalists? What do they do now? I mean, give us that big piece before we go. Okay. So, I mean, Brexit, there is no appetite in any party, any big party, to really discuss Brexit. Labour Party is not interested, sees it as a, de- as a landmine it doesn't want to tread on. So what you're going to see is a conversation about how you can improve relations with the European Union. You know, maybe you have things like joining the SPS or maybe we try and new, do a new deal on visas or elide something here or there or rejoin particular regulatory regimes, get back into the horizon scheme, which actually the European Union is illegally shutting Britain out of now and reprisals for Britain's illegal behaviour. So I think what you'll see from the non-conservative parties, how can we find a better way to operate? That's step one. Down the line, I can still see the single market coving back into view because it's a logical position for the Labour Party to take, but not yet. For the Conservatives, we used to get Rishi Sunak, you get at least a bit more of a pragmatic Brexiter. He didn't want head-on confrontation over the Northern Ireland Protocol, for example. He could see the downsides. But I don't see any big revisiting of Brexit yet. I mean, and I'm not actually convinced the European Union is desperately keen to get Britain back Oh, in no, right I, I think it's a yep. fairly confident assertion to suggest... Yes that nobody in the European Union wants to see Lord Frost or any of those geezers ever again. No. At least for a generation of politicians. And then those guys will go. And a generation of civil servants. That's what it feels like to me. So then you, your second question was about Scotland. That's quite interesting, actually, David, because I would have said if we had this call pre-truss, I would have said that the Scottish nationalists were running into the sand a little bit. They haven't got a route that they can see they're becoming more unpopular. People are wondering, Do I mean, all the polls show no one's interested in a referendum soon. Yeah, They have a policy of a referendum by the end of next year. All the polls say Scots just think there's more important issues to worry about. Then putting out these policy documents, the most recent one on the economy, which raise as many problems as they answer in terms of how you would have the economy functioning. For example, I don't think it's viable to say you're going to rejoin the European Union and not join the euro. I don't actually think that's possible. So they are creating problems for themselves about how long they stick with the pound and so on, and all kinds of things which a confident unionist movement could exploit. And the more the Labour Party is doing well, the a little harder it gets for them, because obviously if Scots have a government that they don't feel quite so viscerally opposed to, that dulls the nationalist instinct a little bit as well. So it was all running into the sand, but I think some of this chaos is helpful to the Scottish National Party. We are still waiting officially on a court case in the British Supreme Court as to whether they have the right to stage an advisory referendum or not, which they're expected to lose, but you never know. But but losing losing that's more great ammunition for them. I mean, well, yeah, if, I'm, if I'm sitting there and thinking, okay, so we've got the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, an entity we're trying to leave has just told us we can't even have an advisory referendum. I and mean, there is a Catalonia feel to it. Well, that's, I mean, up to a point, but I mean, the referendum, if it's illegal, is a Catalonia referendum and they don't want to do that. I mean... You say that, but the truth is they're very good at stoking up grievance either way. So I don't think, and no, no one seriously expects that they are going to win this. You just never know with a court case. And I think Nicola Sturgeon's rather counting on not winning it. I think it would be quite a blow if she did. And you know, the law is very clear on who is allowed to call this referendum, and it's not the Holyrood Parliament. So even if they got the right to call it as an advisory referendum rather than a binding one, I think all the unionists simply refuse to participate. And you could end up with it setting back the cause, because you know, if you get you know a 90, 95% yes vote on a 40% turnout. I'm not sure that actually helps you. No, it doesn't. So actually, she doesn't really need to win this. This is partly about the domestic struggles of the SNP internally. 
definitely the case that Labour's making ground in Scotland. And the more Labour makes ground nationally, the more it will make ground in Scotland. So that and that is the best, in my opinion, the best hope of unionists is a Labour government in Westminster. So we shall see. But the truth is, everything's a horrendous mess at the moment. I should be putting in my asylum application as soon as I get there. You think you think you're getting someone to drive me to the airport back? I'll be I'll have disappeared into the shrubs by then. It's the Tony Cascarino moment where we look for the long lost Robert Schlinsley grandmother. Uh, just to reassure you, Tony Cascarino never had an Irish grandmother. He actually uh, yeah. admitted that much in his autobiography and played what at least. 70 times, yeah, yeah. 70 times, it was much loved. So, yeah, but you know, Ireland's got quite a respectable football squad these days. You really don't want me in it, <laughs> <laughs> Robert. We will see you in Kilkenomics. Thank you so much. Thank see you next week. Cheers, all. Cheers. Cheers. It's funny hearing Robert's voice there. It's kind of like, yeah, man seeks asylum in County Kildare. Yeah, yeah, things see, must be bad in between the boat train. <laughs> I can just see him. Exactly. Man <laughs> arrives with two suitcases. Off the mail yeah. boat. Highly qualified British migrant arrives. Them were the days. Come here, listen. Let's have a chat about how all this came about. Yeah, because it's not this just didn't happen in the last few weeks or in the last few years. Yeah. No, so this is a Let's long Let's pay a long few time. bills first. Actually, paying a few bills is very important. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So, Mark. As we said from the very top, this whole thing is a shit show. Yeah. And Britain has come a long way. They were the leaders of the world. They yeah. were the inventors, the, inventors, the innovators, the, innovators yeah. the engineers, scientists, all of that kind of stuff. And now things have completely and utterly changed. How did this happen? How do we get here? I, I, I think, I think, the roots I, think it's, it's, I think it's really easy in hindsight to see. And it wasn't that difficult in foresight to see what happened. I would say it all started with Mrs. Thatcher mm. and it all started with the financialization of the UK economy. So if you imagine, I come back to the diversity, right? Yeah. When you have a diverse economy, you have something incredibly brilliant. And the reason it's incredibly brilliant is that every time there's a little innovation, okay, a little technological innovation, little engineering innovation, somebody tinkering around, okay, that prompts another, for example, product. 
then that prompts another problem. Think of it, your, your, your iPhone, right? The mobile phone goes from a Nokia to mm. an iPhone. The iPhone is the innovation, but it triggers a whole host of other innovations, podcasting being one of them. Yeah. Okay, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Apps, you know, things that are now totally normal to us, right, came as a trigger from another innovation, right? So innovation is this self-propelling, I almost feel almost econosphere, not the economy, it's like a biosphere yeah. thing, right? Now, you destroy that at your peril because it's built up over years and years and years. And I think what happened was the, the Brits went for this financialization approach so that all their industries would be only judged by shareholder value. Yeah. So therefore, you go away from the idea of stakeholders, customers, employees, your entire supply chain is part. So, uh, you know, if you if you look again at a company, a company is so many things, right? A big company is so many things, mm. right? But if you identify only the owners as being the primary concern in the hierarchy, then what you do is you squeeze profits. Now, the way you squeeze profits in a normal economy is you squeeze costs because it's yeah. very hard to actually increase your prices or market share. Yeah, sure. So how do you squeeze costs? You lay people off. You slash and burn a mm. variety of parts of the business that might not necessarily at that moment be making profit. But what we know is that businesses sometimes can go through lulls and whatever. But if you arrive with a little snip, like a scissors, yeah. so at this moment, what you have, therefore, is a, an extraordinary disemboweling of the creative economy. And once you take people out of working in the creative industries, and I'm talking about manual industries are creative, right? Everything yeah, yeah, is creative. absolutely, yeah. You know, what you do is you put them on the slack heap and they lose their skills. So so this big idea of shifting from... From, from manufacturing to services. Yeah, so where did that come from? That came from, I, well, I think it was class-based. I think that, you know, manufacturing industry has always been the bastion of the working class, yeah. right? Mrs. Thatcher hated the working class yeah. or hated a version of the working class. Yeah. But not just Mrs. Thatcher, a whole load of them. Like you hear Rishi Sunak, trust, they're, they're all inheritors of this nostalgic horseshit. Yes, okay? yeah, yeah. Well, that's something we talked about two With weeks Mark ago. Life. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's the, same, it's the same hymn sheet they're singing off, right? Yeah. But what it does is it rewards, and I, I saw it because I worked in the city, mm. right? And the city, people were paid multiples of the average guy's salary for doing what you would regard as a bullshit job. Yeah. Being able to read spreadsheets. Yeah. Right? Okay, creating nothing. Just hot air. Stuff. Yeah. And when you financialize, remember that city I was talking about that was taking the engineers and was deciding, okay, we're going to finance you, right? That's all gone. Now the city is now just full of spivs, acid strippers, yeah. private equity flippers, and general sort of what I would call financial bottom feeders. So, so it's kind of turned a quick book. Turn the QuickBook all the time. You can't yeah. run a country like that. You've got to run a country on foresight, longevity. Where are we going? Now, you don't necessarily have to orchestrate it from the top, mm. but the mood music is created from the top. But the problem for the UK is that how that percolates down to the economy is where you see this inequality. Yeah. So if you run your country with the idea that inequality is fair, so inequality is a reflection of effort, which is the Thatcherite idea. Yeah. And then we will... It's meritocracy. Precisely. Yeah, then we yeah. will reward those who do very well because it's a reflection of their brilliance. Mm -hmm. Whereas those who do really badly are all scroungers. Clearly their own fault. Exactly. It's their own fault, right? So if you run a society like that 
and you prioritize the rich over the poor at every juncture, and you prioritize tax cuts for the rich over what I would call helps for the poor, right? What you will get is you do this over 10 or 15 years or 20 or 35 years, you'll get a profound gap between rich and poor. If you look at the statistics, right, in most countries around the world, I'm talking about developed countries, right? Okay, and the United Kingdom is a developed country. The gap between the top 10% and the bottom 10% in terms of what you take home, what you have, is about three times, right? right? In the United Kingdom, that gap is six times, right? In the United States, it's even higher. Yeah. But in the United Kingdom, it's six times. So basically, the poor people in the United Kingdom, the gap between the poor and the rich is a massive chasm. And the problem with poverty, we've said before, it obliterates the future. Yeah. So it means you cannot plan. Yeah. It means you're anxious about money today. It means you have a huge anxiety about what your money's coming tomorrow. So it creates in the poor people a sense of almost permanent anxiety. And it creates in the richer people almost permanent anxiety because they know they have so much and somebody's going to take it off them. Yeah. So they keep voting for people who say, we're going to cut taxes for the rich. Even the rich know in their bones that the society is fracturing, right? Yeah, and this is what I yeah, think is yeah, happening yeah. in the UK. And very rich English people who don't like this vote Liberal Democrat. Right, yeah, So yeah. it's an op It's like, <laughs> I didn't vote for those fucking Tories, but I'm keeping all my stuff, all my goodies, right? So you see that. So if you look at Louis Brandeis, who was a Supreme Court judge in the United States right. in the 1940s, great advisor to both Eleanor and Franklin D. Roosevelt. So those what I call that greatest generation of Americans, said something very interesting about democracy. And this gets us back to the political dilemma the British find themselves in. Democracy, he said, can have inequality or democracy, but you can't have both. What he meant was that inequality is fundamentally at odds with democracy. The promise of democracy is one man, one vote. So it's, it's, we are equal at a certain moment, right? One man, one vote is entirely inconsistent with one man earning six times more than the other man. Yeah. Right? And that the system will fracture. And what I think we're seeing now is the fracturing of the British system under the burden of inequality. That inequality is the anvil that they continue to carry just behind all their slogans and their Mm. things. And as Mark Blyde said last week, they weaponized this inequality with Brexit. Yeah. So they said, okay, yeah, we have inequality. And yes, you feel anxious. And yes, you feel outside. But you know what? It's the Europeans' problem. Yeah. It's not our problem. It's those people and in it's Europe. their fault as well. And it's their fault. <laughs> yeah. And if it wasn't for French people, you wouldn't be poor. Yeah. But in actual, you're poor because we orchestrated these policies against you for 40 years. Yeah. So it's not the unintended consequence. Poverty is the intended consequence of Thatcherism. But I mean, this has happened in many societies before. You know, you you keep a people down, you make them poor. At some stage, they're going to kick back. Unless you give them Sky Sports subscriptions. Well. No, I'm serious. Yeah, I know. know. Circuses, Yeah, right? Also what they did in Iran as well. Yeah, there's been an infantilization of the British, I would say, working class. So this is it, John. We are witnessing the fracturing of Britain. Yes. Robert Trimley said this party, the party of government, is ungovernable, right? Yes. So it is 
pulling itself apart. It's the epitome of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yes, it? it is. It is. You know, how the truly incompetent overestimate their competence. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Google, but I brought the lemons, which is your man's thinks he thought the lemons would make him be invisible. <laughs> Yeah. That's it. That's it. That was from another podcast. It's a deep popular culture from Philadelphia in the 1970s. But it is the Dunning-Kruger effect is in psychology where the truly incompetent overestimate their yeah. competence. And this is a great example of it. But in reality, what happens when the society begins to atrophy, right? You get crazy politics. Mm. You get the ballast in politics not being able to operate. So the Labour Party has become afraid of itself, doesn't come out and say, actually, this is what we're going to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have the Scots saying, we don't want a part of this. Who knows what's going to happen in Northern Ireland, but we're going to have to basically look after them. Yeah, yeah. Both deal with sides. that. In and time, will. in we time. Will. We will yeah. in time, right? But, you know, and then you have the economic crisis in the UK. So you have the current account deficit needs to close. You can't keep doing that. Closing a current account deficit means running a recession, right? Running a recession means you attack asset holders. Yeah. Asset holders are largely householders in the, in the UK. So your asset prices begin to fall. Then, of course, your unemployment begins to rise. Then, of course, if the markets are up your ass and your unemployment begins to rise, your tax levels will fall. You're spending automatic stabilizers, which they're called will automatically run into a deficit and you run up the cul-de-sac of another budget deficit, the market's again yeah. deciding to attack you and something has to break. And inequality increases then. Inequality increases. Even more than now. Yeah, it, even more. The society begins, I mean, fracturing is a nice word for breaking. Yeah. The society breaks apart and this can happen really, really quickly. And I think it's happening in the UK as we speak. And I think that nothing I've heard in the last week or two from whether it's Boris Johnson or whether it's Rishi Sunak or whether it's even the commentariat in the UK understands the gravitas of their present situation. And only when you go to the Science Museum, John, and you see where they came from, yeah, you see the absolute tragedy and how far they've fallen. And I'm not too sure they get it. John, before we go, Kilconomics News. We are on the week after next. And we have a couple of tickets, actually more than a couple of tickets, that we held back. We're putting them on. So a lot of sold out gigs. We put on what they call production tickets. So they're there. Have a look at Kilconomics.com. And we've moved. I think it will be a fascinating conversation between myself and Nassim Taleb. We've moved it to the cathedral. We're going to talk about all sorts of things. One topic is going to be Christianity, the economics of. So myself and Taleb in the cathedral Saturday afternoon because it's a bigger venue we have more tickets so check out kilconomics.com Hi I'm Daniel founder of Pretty Litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.